this morning, as we already mentioned, we're going to be talking about the story of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness with Satan. But specifically taking a look at what are some lessons that we can learn for our own lives today and how can we uh, be better equipped in our own times of temptation because of what we read of Jesus enduring. We're going to start in an unusual place this morning, but I hope you'll bear with me for just a moment. And I promise we're going to bring it around and hopefully we'll make perfect sense with it before the, um, the lesson is over. You know, over the course of the last several centuries, there's been a seminal work, a, a central book that has uh, stood the test of time. In fact, this book just celebrated its 500th anniversary last year. It's a book by a Chinese philosopher named Sun Tzu, and it's called The Art of War. The fact is that many Americans have read this book, and even if you haven't read this book, you're familiar with aspects of this book. There are things, principles, there are uh, quotes from it that would be readily recognizable to most anybody. It's among my very favorite books. I've read it several times and find it to be just an, an amazing book. It started out to be a book, just as the title says, about warfare. It, it was a book that was originally written by a tactician, by, by a, a general, a military mind about how it is that we go about physical conflict with other nations. But what's interesting is over the course of time, people have recognized that there's so many principles and so many ideas in this book that are far beyond the principles of warfare. In fact, in most, in most um, business schools today, this book is required reading. And obviously, we're not training people in business schools, thankfully, to go out and, and start wars, but we are learning from these principles that are in this book. It's, it's little pithy statements, little one-liners that are just so replete with deep meaning. They just have enormous um, practical wisdom to them. Let me share three with you that are among my favorite teachings of Sun Tzu. Here's the first. A quality decision is the well-timed swoop of a falcon, which enables it to strike its victim. Isn't it, first of all, it's just beautiful poetry. Doesn't it just sound great rolling off the tongue? A quality decision is a well-timed swoop of a falcon. Here's a second. All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we're far away. When we're far away, we must make him believe we are near. And third, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. This little book has been something that is used from boardrooms to classrooms to battlefields throughout the course of several hundred years. But this morning what I'd like to do is suggest to you that the principles that we just discussed in those three statements beautifully reflect what we see Jesus doing in his conflict with Satan. Timeless war, uh, rules of warfare that Jesus himself shows us work very well in our spiritual conflict with Satan. Here are our three points, put simply. First of all, know your battlefield. Know your battlefield. Know where the enemy is. Know where you are. Know where the enemy is strong. Know where the enemy is weak. More importantly... Know where you are strong, and know where you are weak. Second, don't fall for deception. The enemy will always come with deception. And so the question becomes, how will these attacks occur? How will these attacks occur? 
And when we talk about our spiritual conflict with Satan, we need to be resolute, we need to be crystal clear, and we need to have a good understanding of what Satan is, what Satan is about, and how Satan is going to bring the attack to us. Third, know your enemy. Know yourself. When the time of conflict comes, spiritually speaking, when the time comes that you and I are engaged in that cosmic spiritual battle with Satan through temptation, knowing ourselves, where we're strong and where we're weak, Knowing the way that Satan works and knowing our own tendencies is going to be something that will help us greatly. Sun Tzu said it well. When you know yourself and you know your enemy, you need not fear the outcome of a hundred battles. We have an advantage. When you know yourself, when you know your enemy, you're guided by the Holy Spirit and under the blood of Christ. You need not worry the outcome of a thousand battles with Satan. We're going to start in an interesting place to take this analogy into our story because it's important for us to recognize that spiritual warfare, conflict, temptation wasn't something that burst on the scene in Matthew chapter 4. But it is something that has been historically part of the human story for as long as there's been a human story. We have continually been at war with Satan and temptation from the very onset of our existence. One of the things that is interesting about the human experience is we have this idea that, the, that all of time began with us. It's not really us to blame. That's, that's our perspective. We have this idea that, that time started when we were created. But the reality is we were dropped into the middle of a big story. We were dropped into a story that was already well engaged before we ever came along. And very rarely do I think we stop in the church and think about the fact that we weren't the beginning of the story. We were added into an existing story. The very first words that we have of God in the Bible is that God was hovering over the face of the waters. It talks about chaos. It talks about um, formless and void. The words formless and void. And from that formless and void uh, destruction, chaos, God brought forth creation. What's interesting about that is those two words are used very specifically in the Bible to mean battle damage. It's to talk about a city that's been ravaged by a battle. Formless and void is what it looks like when an ancient city would have been overrun by a powerful army and burned to the ground. What's interesting is that the very first introduction we have to God is God standing over a ravaged battlefield of utter destruction and chaos and saying, let's bring order out of this and out of that came humanity and creation and the world that we know today. The reason I bring that up is because I think there was already a story going on before we ever came in. In fact, that battle damage came from somewhere. That, that void and, and emptiness came from somewhere. And I think it came from Revelation chapter 12. Way back, before man was ever created, we have these things that were written to us by John in his revelation, chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Then war broke out in the heavens, and Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels were fighting back, but they could not win. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven, so the great dragon was thrown down to the earth. The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and called Satan, who deceives the whole world, his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now at last has come salvation and power, the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Messiah. The accuser of our family has been thrown down, 
the one who accuses them before God day and night, they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony because they did not love their lives unto death. Listen. So rejoice, you heavens, and all who live there. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing he has only a short time. We live in the world that the devil has come down into in great anger, and he knows he only has a short time. I say that to say that the cosmic conflict that we have with temptation is old. It's as old as the human race. It's as old as our creation story. And it is every bit as dangerous and every bit as desperate today as it was all the way back in the days of Adam and Eve. Which is where our story begins. When we talk about those three principles of warfare, the first is choose your battlefield. The first is, know where the attack's going to come from and know where the defensible position is that you can stand firm at. It's exactly what God did from the very beginning. God knew that we would, in the form of Adam and Eve, the first family, God knew that Adam and Eve would face Satan. God knew that Adam and Eve would face temptation. I mean, after all, this is, this is the devil's kingdom. He was thrown down to here, and God in this cosmic plan is, is planting, as it were, special forces behind enemy lines in the form of Adam and Eve to bring a kingdom on earth and to raise up kings and queens among his people that would push back the darkness and would bring in a covenant of light. Well, the temptation's going to come. God knows that. The devil's here, he's angry, and he's desperate. So what he does is he prepares a battlefield that will be as defensible as humanly possible for Adam and Eve. He puts them in a garden a beautiful place of peace. He surrounds the outer edges of the garden with every kind of fruit tree you can imagine, 360-degree view of every beautiful fruit you could possibly have, and in the middle of it, he puts two trees, tree of knowledge of good and evil, tree of life, and tells him not to eat of one. But I want you to vision how he helped make that such a defendable position. Did they see that tree, and did it look good? Sure. But look at every other tree that they had at their disposal. They couldn't look at that tree without seeing in their periphery hundreds of other trees that offered so much wonderful bounty to them. You see, he knew temptation would come, but he put them in a position where they could have all the advantages. The second principle. How would that attack come when it does come? And in the same way that Satan continues to work today, God knew that Satan would use deception. Satan is called the prince of lies. Satan always comes as uh, masquerading as an angel of light. He always comes trying to tell us something is true that's not, something is good that's not, something is helpful that's not. His whole game is one of deception. And so to counteract that, God wanted them to be crystal clear in Knowing who he, God, is. Knowing his voice. This is a lesson we're going to pick up on in just a few moments when we talk about our practical application. But here's the deal. If Adam and Eve knew God's voice, knew him intimately, knew who he was, knew what he believed, knew what he stood for, knew his very presence, then when Satan came, they would know that's not God's voice. That's not God's will. That's not God's presence. Well, 
They had a battlefield that was prepared with every advantage for them to win. They had a, a battle plan. They knew how Satan would come. God had prepared them. God had come down and walked with them day by day. It said in the cool of the evening, God would come and walk in the garden with them. He had given them every potential to refuse this temptation. He'd given them the proper ground to do it. And despite God's best laid plans, they failed. As all too often, we do as well. A second example a second example of how spiritual warfare has been important in the history of God's people, Adam and Eve, and then the Exodus. One of the most important themes in all of the Old Testament, one of the most important images that's found anywhere in the Bible, and a story that we see going, New Testament writers going back to time and time again to explain all the ins and outs of what it is that we move from bondage to freedom as we move into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So you go back to this picture of the Exodus and you have Satan who's terribly threatened by this promise of God. God comes to a man, Abraham, and says to Abraham, you're going to have many children. This is going to be my people. These are going to be my people and I'm going to do great things through these. You have to believe that Satan, hearing this, recognizing this, is fearful of this. Look at all the ways that God has continually been battled by Satan to stop this plan. These children of Abraham now, Satan must have been sitting back in his easy chair, his hands behind his head, just kicked back and enjoying the scene of God's chosen race in bondage. Prisoners, slaves, powerless in Egypt. And how he must have thought to himself, I've won. This is God's great people. This is God's great hope. This is God's great plan. They're powerless. Until he hears word of Moses. This, this baby who's going to be born that's going to bring the people out of... Well, Satan has a plan for that, doesn't he? The slaughter of the innocents, the destruction of all those baby boys, and how God continued to watch over Moses as this cosmic battle between God and Satan over the people of Abraham in Egypt continues to battle off. Out of the clutches of defeat, time and time again, this man Moses... <clears throat> gets placed in the home of the Pharaoh, given all the advantages. And Satan must have been quaking in his boots to see what this man would, could possibly do until he tempts him with anger and hatred. And Moses commits murder, flees for his life, and now finds himself hiding out in the shepherd's caves of Midian. And once again, how Satan must have breathed a sigh of relief. Whew, that was a close one. In this story, you see the battle going back and forth. You see the, the back and forth action of these two. And all those same questions come out. Until we find ourselves here in the wilderness. For what I call the first battle of the wilderness. Moses leading the people. Egypt behind them. The promised land before them. And the first principle... Where will the battle take place? God knows there's going to be a battle. God knows that Satan hasn't given up. God knows that Satan's going to continue to pursue and hound and harry the people of, of Israel for as long as he can, as desperately as he can. Because remember, he's been thrown down. He's here. He's angry and he's desperate. So, where did he lead them? He led them to the wilderness, under the shadow of a great mountain, a place where there are no foreign, we no foreign powers, 
no other enemies, a place that was free from all kinds of distraction, a place that was just them and God, a place for them to be in connection with God, to stand at the base of that mountain and to see him come down in glory, to have a place where he could give his people the most defendable position possible to face Satan. Second, how will the attack occur? The same way it always does. Satan comes in deception. Satan comes in deception. But God worked so diligently to prepare the people for deception. He said to the people, I, I've given you food from heaven in the form of manna. I've given you water from rocks. I've provided your clothes to never wear out. Your shoes never fail. Your tents never need repairs. I've done everything for you. Cleared the land of conquering armies. I've protected you and defended you so that when the time of conflict comes, you'll know my voice. You'll know my provision. You'll know that I will not leave you if you'll just stay with me in they didn't. And so for 40 long years, they faced the consequence of that. All of that brings us to our story today in what I call the second battle of the wilderness. Because here in that same battlefield, another story takes place. The same battlefield. This same wilderness where God watched heartbroken as tens of thousands of his people fell victim to this terrible, terrible battle. The defeat of Satan. And God comes to triumphantly overturn the failure of the first battle of the wilderness. The story is found in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but I'm going to be looking at the, the passage from Luke. It's up here on the screen behind if you'd like to follow along with me. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he endured temptations from the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were completed, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, To you I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it. Listen, for it has been given to me, relinquished to me, and I can give it to anybody I wish. So then if you worship me, all this will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil brought him into Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And with their hands they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. So when the devil had completed every temptation, he departed from him until a more opportune time. This battle is a profound and practical battle. It really does give us a lot of insight on how Satan works how God protects us from temptation and how we can stand firm in the face of Satan's onslaught. A couple of things we need to be clear of when we look at this story. You know, for the longest time, I didn't really kind of acknowledge that Jesus was facing real temptation. And maybe you've not really struggled with that in your own mind, but by definition, for temptation to be temptation, it has to be desirable. It has to be something that really does appeal to you. I'm never going to be tempted by Brussels sprouts. I'm just not. You're never going to tempt me with something that I truly don't like. So by definition, if Jesus is tempted, then it has to be something that he would really appeal, it would really appeal to him. Second, it has to be something he can really choose. 
You know, sometimes I think we have the idea that this story is just going through the motions. It's just kind of play acting. It's just sort of saying, yes, I'm going to go along with this. But it really, I, I was never in danger. I was never in question. I really couldn't have done this stuff to begin with. It really was appealing. He really could have done these things. It says he is tempted in every way just as we are. We read that in Hebrews chapter 4 when we opened this morning. This, there's a possibility that Jesus could have truly fallen victim to these. These are real temptations. Just like the real temptations that we face. Now I want you to imagine for a moment the consequence of Jesus falling to these temptations. Imagine what it would have went to our world. Imagine what today would look like if Jesus had fallen victim to any of these temptations. But in the story, we see that Jesus not only has a profound means by which to defend himself from temptation, but he gives us that same formula so that we can apply it when we find ourselves in great temptations. And it falls along the same lines. Know your battlefield, don't fall for deception, and know your enemy, know yourself. So, let's think about where the attack will occur. You know, in combat, there's a thing called initiative. And a general always wants to have initiative. And initiative just means he's the one who's calling the shots. The other person is reacting to him. And by knowing the battlefield, choosing the battlefield, you can gain initiative. And God does that. God chose the paradise of Eden a great defendable battlefield. God chose the, the peaceful wilderness of the Exodus, a place where he could help the people be successful on the battlefield. And he did, this, did the same thing. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, but God chose the battlefield. And that's a powerful image. The very site of one of Satan's greatest victories is chosen by God to be the site of one of Satan's greatest defeats, avenging that previous failure. It's interesting that Jesus was in fasting for 40 days when we remember that in that very same wilderness, the people suffered for 40 years, a direct parallel to Jesus undoing that kind of tragedy of the past. God chose this place. He gave the greatest possibility for success. And he does so for you and me. When we face our temptations, God gives us the same promise. And he gives us the same uh, opportunities that he's been giving all throughout history. In the garden, in, in the wilderness. He's going to provide us the means to stand firm. He's going to give us a defendable territory. He's going to be able to, he's going to help us to be successful to meet the challenge that's before us. We need to look to him, we need to recognize that, and we need to become empowered in the fight to come, knowing that God is already here with me in this temptation, providing every means for me to be successful on this battlefield. Number two, how's the attack going to come? God knew what Satan was going to do, and Jesus was prepared for it. Now, note that. It's one thing to say that you and I know how Satan's going to come at us. It's another thing to say we're prepared for it. Jesus not only knew how he was going to come, but he was prepared for it. Satan came at Jesus the same way he comes at us. We've heard sermon after sermon about this. The, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The exact same temptations that you face, the exact same temptations that I face, the exact same temptations that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. But 
Jesus was able to withstand because Jesus had prepared for that very conflict. How prepared are you and I for our temptations? It's one thing to say that I know Satan's going to come after me with temptations, and I think you'd agree with me he will, and he does. It's another thing to say I even know how Satan is going to come at me. He's going to come at me with deception. He's going to come at me making things look good when in actuality they're really corrosive. The question is then, how prepared am I? How prepared am I for that moment to take place? Each of these temptations has something specific for us to learn. And each one of these temptations that we see Jesus uh, uh, engaging in gives us a lesson because we're tempted the same way and therefore the answers that he gave, the way he defended himself, are also ways that we can defend ourselves when this comes along. You know, the idea of stones to bread, stones to bread was appealing to Jesus' physical nature. It says he hadn't eaten for 40 days. Now this wasn't a, a religious fast. In those days you had a religious fast which meant you didn't eat during the daylight hours and at night you could eat which I don't know about y'all, but if that's, the, the, if that's the mode that I'm given, then you can imagine I'm going to be packing on some serious calories all night long, and I'll probably be fine for the next day. But that's not the fast that Jesus took on. Jesus took on a complete fast, a total fast. And at the end of 40 days, it says he was hungry. That, that word hungry, that's famished. That's actually talking about the fact that his body was starting to break down to the point that he believed he was in starvation mode. He saw death on the door. That was how desperate the situation was. And so when the temptation comes, turn these stones into bread, what Satan is saying, you can do this. You're hungry, you can meet your needs. You can take care of what you need to take care of. You don't have to depend on anybody else. You have the power in your hands to be self-reliant. What was the appeal to Adam and Eve in the garden? You will be like God, Satan said. What's he saying? You won't need anybody else. You won't need to depend on God or anybody else because you'll be able to take care of yourself. You know, that's a very appealing message, isn't it? I think from the time that we're very, very young, we live with this mode that we just want to, I do it myself. I hear my little kids used to say that all the time. That was this, 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 this screaming mantra of self-reliance. And you know what? When we get to be 50, we still haven't outgrown that. We still want to be self-reliant. We still want to be able to do it ourselves. Satan knows that. And he comes at us with a temptation of self-reliance. He said to Jesus, why not just take care of yourself? You don't have to depend on God. You do it. Interestingly, a side note, the last time that Satan tried to tempt a sinless human, an inappropriate food did a pretty good job. He might have thought he was going to go two for two. Second temptation was the kingdoms of the earth. All the kingdoms of the earth are revealed to Christ. He's shown all these wonderful, um, amazing kingdoms of men. And this is a, um, a temptation that would have been enormously powerful to Jesus. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to set up a kingdom. A kingdom of God on earth. A kingdom of heaven on earth. That's what he came to do. Imagine that he could come and do that and he could do it in a flash. He could do it in a snap. These kingdoms could be given to him. They could be his kingdom. He doesn't have to work up through oppression and persecution and all kinds of obstacles. He doesn't have to face all the hardships that he's going to face. He doesn't have to look at the, the years and years and years of how God's people are going to struggle and, and, and be persecuted and be pushed down and oppressed. He can overcome all of that in a heartbeat. He can have a kingdom without a struggle. 
he can have a kingdom without a crucifixion. Satan is offering him an alternative to the most devastating, horrible end to an existence that we could possibly imagine. And Jesus was tempted by this, as any of us would be as well. Third, a spectacle. A spectacle. The temptation to remove all doubts. Jesus, if you are who you say you are, just make it clear, prove it. Show him a sign, show him something so amazing, so spectacular, so over the top, that nobody could possibly ever, ever deny that you are truly who you say you are. You know, this would be a temptation that would be cropping up over and over in the life of Jesus. In Matthew 12, in Matthew 16, and in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you have all these verses that talk about the people constantly coming to Jesus and say, show us a sign, show us a sign, do a miracle, do a wonder, do something great, do something amazing. You see, the situation was that Jesus didn't come to awe people with power. He came to win people with love. Jesus didn't come in wonder-working, for the sake of gaining relationship. He came in gaining relationship that worked wonders. And that's still the way he operates today. You see, to use spectacle would have minimized his true purpose. Spectacle would have been the thing that brought people, but spectacle wasn't relationship building. And that's not what he came to do. He came to build relationships. He came to be the voice and the presence and the personification of love. And when that tempting voice came, Jesus knew what was the voice of Satan, and he knew what was the will of God. So what does that say to us? What do we take from this? What can we respond in this story? Well, let's real quickly look at a couple of things that I think are important. When it comes to the temptation of bread to stone, self-reliance, what does Jesus do to defend himself against this temptation? He goes back to the word of God. He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. He goes back to a passage that talks about how it is on God that we rely, not on ourselves. The Israelites were at a, a moment in their history when they were tempted with self-reliance. But they knew that only way they were going to be successful was to give it over to God and trust in Him. Do you and I have that kind of trust? Do you and I have that kind of competence in our relationship with God that when the hardships come and the difficulties are there and the desire for self-reliance is, is just, just whispering in our ears consistently and constantly? When push comes to shove, are we more reliant on what I can go and do or what God is doing in me? You see, Jesus tells us that the way we prepare for that is to store the word of God up in our heart and be ready to give an answer when that moment comes. The second temptation, the second temptation of giving the kingdoms of the earth to Jesus, he reminds us that it's the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of earth, that's ultimately going to bring success. We have to choose to stick with the plan of God rather than making our own plan, working our own means, and finding our own ways. He's made it clear. That's exactly what the passage from Deuteronomy 6 that he quotes back to Satan is all about. Do we have that stored up in our heart? Are we ready for that answer? When the moment comes to strike our own course, or to follow the course that God has prescribed, which one looks more appealing? Finally and last, the spectacle. 
the spectacle, the big show, the big moment, the flashy event, as opposed to the dedicated, diligent, moment-by-moment connection with God in relationship. There's a temptation there for us. It's not in the grand moments that happen occasionally that the true relationships in our life know our love. It's not that I can simply go through the motions day after day, week after week, and on an anniversary throw a huge event for my wife and assume that that one huge event, that flashy moment, that big, that big flash in the pan is going to somehow be the thing that builds our relationship. The relationship is built moment by moment, day by day, continually over time. God is not wanting to be a God of spectacle to us, but a God of relationship with us. And we need to recognize the dangers of a spectacle over the moment-by-moment connection of relationship. Let's close with these thoughts. When we think about the battle plan, when we think about the way in which Satan will come at us, and we think about the the plan for defending ourselves that God has given us through Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, there's a couple of things that I think are important for us to remember. Do you remember the last words that were on the end of Luke's account, he left for a more opportune time. Can I tell you that those are among the scariest words? Because I believe very much that that's exactly what Satan does constantly. He's looking for a more opportune time. You know, that one time that he comes at his full bore and we are ready and we're prepared and we've treasured up the word of God, we've looked for his deception, we've heard the voice that we know is not God's, we've seen the will that we know is not God's, we've stood firm in the faith that God has given us the strength through Jesus Christ to resist, and he says, okay, but you'll be weak again. There'll be a moment, there'll be an opportune time. Can I share with you that I think one of the most important things we can do with this lesson is recognize what our own opportune times are? Boy, this week, Bishop and I have spent a lot of time studying this and talking about this and praying about this. And God's done a lot to show me some of my opportune times. I I talk about this all the time. Halt, H-A-L-T. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. When does Satan find Jeff in his most opportune time? When I'm hungry, when I'm angry, when I'm lonely, when I'm tired. When does he find Jeff at his most opportune times when he's not feeling successful in his job or his family or his marriage? Temptation is ripe. He's ready to be plucked. When, when is Jeff most susceptible to these things? He sees it when I'm, when I'm disconnected from friendships. I'm not engaged in relationship. He can see that. He recognizes that. And he knows what my opportune times are. And i got to tell you, it's a scary, scary thing to know that the devil who was thrown out of heaven, taken down to an earth, it says he is here, he is angry, he is desperate, and he knows when I'm weak. That's cost me a little sleep this week. My best defense is to know myself and to know my enemy, to recognize what my weak points are, and to shore up those areas with the grace of God that give me the opportunity to stand firm in His strength when those those attacks do come. I don't want to let Satan dictate the terms of the engagement. I don't want to let Satan choose the battlefield. I don't want to let Satan find me in an opportune moment. Instead, I want to be shored up I want to have the word of God treasured up. I want to have the clear.
clear voice of God in my ear so I'm not deterred by the false voice of Satan trying to sound like God's voice in my ear. And I want to be able to stand resolute in the same strategies that Jesus used to counter the attacks that Satan carried out on him. We know what he's bringing. We know what our weaknesses are. We know where the battle is going to take place. We know the way Satan's going to come at us. We know what our own opportune moments are. And in that mind, we need to be prepared to stand in the victorious power of Jesus Christ against the temptations that come our way. We're never told that we won't have problems in this life, but we are told we'll never be alone. And when those times of temptation come, Jesus promises to stand beside us and to give us the strength that is necessary. Ours is not a desperate hope that maybe we'll be able to stand firm because that's not what God said. God said to, Jesus said to Peter, he said, I'm building a kingdom and the kingdom of God is going to be such that it is going to charge the very gates of hell and they won't be able to stand against it. You see, under the power of God, with Christ in our life, not only can we stand against the temptations that come our way, but we can actually push back the force of Satan in this world together, collectively, as his kingdom. And that's what he calls us to do. Jesus says, the sheep will know my voice. Soldiers, do we know the voice of our general? He's calling us forward. He's pushing us onward. He's there beside us encouraging. He's exhorting and showing our mission. Do we hear his voice? Do we know it? Do we recognize it? Well, we can't if we're not part of the army. And I think one of the most important things we need to recognize is that uh, enlistment has no time frame. But we can always recognize the call of Jesus Christ on our lives to be his child to come to be a part of the family of God, to have our sins cleansed in baptism and to rise a new creation, ready to stand firm against the attacks of Satan in our lives. This morning, wherever you are in your walk, if you've never started down that journey or if you're many years in, we want you to know that we're here to help you in any way that we can. We hope you'll make that known as we stand and sing. Jim.